Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 5th, 2017, and my guest is Philip Auerswald, a professor at George Mason University at the Schar School of Policy and Government. His latest book is The Code Economy, a 40,000-year history from Oxford University Press. He currently serves as co-chair and executive director of the Global Entrepreneurship Research Network, an initiative of the Kauffman Foundation, and he is the co-founder and co-editor of Innovations, a quarterly journal about entrepreneurial solutions to global challenges, published by MIT Press. Philip, welcome to EconTalk. Great to be on. Our topic for today is an article that you were recently at Medium.com, uh, which, of course, we'll link to. And the title is The Origin of Populist Surges Everywhere, which is a pretty bold title. And you start your essay with a very provocative set of maps, which uh, could alarm listeners who can't see them. Uh, they're welcome to go to the essay, of course, but we're going to, I think, describe them pretty simply. It's, they're pretty clear. There are three maps. Uh, they're organized by counting. They show the change in the intensity of Republican and Democrat voting in the 2012 presidential election as compared with 2004. That is, how much more Republican or how much more Democrat a county voted uh, in 2012 versus 2004. The second map shows, or second, yeah, the second map shows overdose death rates, mostly from opioids. And the third is the rates of firearm suicide by counties. And they look pretty similar. Uh, those three things seem to be geographically correlated. What do you conclude from those pictures? Well, so that was my way into this particular post was just this conjecture uh, that maybe something about the rural-urban divide in this country was correlated with some other variables. And um, really, it was just on a, on, a, on a guess that I pulled up these particular three. I actually didn't mind this uh, intensively at all. Uh, but when I looked at them, it was pretty striking. Um, and, of course, this is all just, just correlations and, and just eyeballing when it you know, comes to the way it's presented in, in the blog post. Um, there are some links that I provide within the post. And, of course, there's a lot of related literature that I think substantiates these as being significant correlations. Um, but really, um, it, it really began as a, an exploration about the significance of the uh, rural-urban divide in the United States in particular uh, as really the likely the decisive element in terms of uh, the outcome of the 20, 2016 election. And I should say I posted this uh, July twentieth, 2016. So, uh, of course, after the election, there was a lot of writing on this topic. Uh, before, there was some... Uh, July 20th, 2016, there wasn't very much. So um, I think that, uh, you know, on, on that level, it, it, it would have more prescience than if I had published it today. The thing that I noticed, uh, it's interesting, I noticed something different from what you highlighted. What I noticed is that there was a band, a sort of Milky Way of darkness <laughs> instead of brightness, that ran from maybe West Virginia down through uh, Arkansas where there were increases in Republican voting, increases in firearm suicides, and increases in opioid deaths. Um, 
You, however, focused, which is the flip side of the same story in your essay, you focused on what you call megacities. So talk about what a megacity is. Identify the ones that are relevant for this picture uh, or maybe more easily the ones that aren't. Most of them are relevant. And why you want to talk about megacities. Well, yeah, I mean, the, no, that band um, sort of, uh, you know, West Virginia on over through um, really eastern uh, Missouri um, also reaches up into uh, northern Wisconsin and Michigan uh, significantly for the outcomes. Uh, but that really is the, the, the sort of focal point when you just, just look at the, the maps. Um, the significance of the megacities is simply that, I mean, Ed Glazer wrote a magnificent book, uh, just uh, you know, a few years ago, the triumph of, of the city, and uh, the point that he's making in that book is um, an important one, and I think one that uh, is not really heavily disputed, which is that the 21st century, uh, in uh, certainly the 20th going into the 21st, has been a, an era in which uh, the largest cities have become even more dominant and have driven the advance of human society. In human prosperity. Um, and he really tells this as a positive story. Uh, but in, in a way, uh, when we think about the origins of populist surges, and I really want to point out that uh, this isn't just the United States, that the point is this is a global phenomenon, that it is something that is really kind of the revenge of the country, you know, if, if we think about the triumph of the city as being the baseline. And um, so, so there really are not just the sort of dominance of the largest city, but increasing dominance of the largest city. And, and that's, that's, that's really the kind of the backdrop for, for the maps, I think, in, these, uh, in the post. And by megacities, you, you don't just mean like New York City. Uh, you don't just mean, say, Denver. You're talking about the, the whole various corridors of population density. Yeah, I mean, I mean to take a step back uh, from um, the U.S., which is sort of the next step I take in, in the post, that if you didn't know anything about Republicans, Democrats, you didn't know anything about Brexit and Marine Le Pen, you didn't know anything about Vladimir Putin, you didn't know anything about any of that, and you were trying to sort out what is happening on this planet with these people at this particular point in time, and let's say you had been watching human society, human civilization for a number of centuries, if not millennia, there were three things, or there are three things, that I think would really stand out. Uh, one of them is what we've just been talking about, is urbanization. Uh, we are a social species. Um, uh, we, we, we have become increasingly densely interconnected within urban areas. And so we know that story. That's the triumph of the city story. Uh, and, and if anything, the gap between uh, the largest metros and the rest, uh, rest of the world uh, is growing. Uh, the second is depopulation combined with populate, population aging. And this is a phenomenon we, we, you know, we have never experienced previously in human history. Now, th that when people think about uh, depopulation at a global scale, the tendency is to think about it as sort of a 2050 phenomenon uh, because that's when uh, the United Nations population projections sort of plateau and then you sort of go into you know, either uh, uh, just sort of a steady level or population decline. But the reality is that all of North America, all of Europe, and all of East Asia today are at below replacement rate fertility, which means absent uh, population aging and immigration, all of North America, all of Europe, and all of East Asia would be in population decline already, uh, as well as populous developing countries such as Iran, Brazil, and so forth. When you say, when you say uh, aging, you mean if we live longer – 
Right. So, so uh, we could when you sustain live- a growth in population, but it still would be probably a growth of non-working people. So the working population almost certainly, if these trends continue, is going to get smaller in those areas. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 so there's a, there's a tendency to fixate on on Japan uh, in this story, and certainly Japan has been a leading edge, and we can talk about how Japan has been the world's leading uh, creditor nation uh, for the last quarter century. I don't know if they've just been ota- overtaken by by China, but it has. They've been in, in, in that category for a long time. And this is just the same time that their working age population began to decline and then their overall population began to decline. But it's far from Japan being the only one. It's a global phenomenon. Uh, and again, this has never happened in human history that we have this trajectory of population decline at the same time that we have aging. Usually when you have population decline, it's in an era of you know, plagues, wars, so forth and so on. Um, and, and the third one is what I talk about in the code economy, uh, and I think it's, it's equally as significant as the first two, which is the advance of technology as code. And so just all the gadgets, uh, AI, automation, all these things that we talk about, the whole various you know, set of categories we think about as, as the advance of the technological frontier, uh, the, this is a third sort of major driver. And when you intersect those three then you get the origins of popular surges everywhere. I mean, it's a global phenomenon. It's not a United States phenomenon. And it's something that's rooted in these just fundamental trends that are not going to be going away anytime soon. So let me just review them. Urbanization, slowing population growth or even negative population growth, that is a decline in population and an advance in technology. So why should those things uh, lead to more populism? That's the or any of those things lead to more populism. Well, so I mean, it's important to underscore. Before, sorry, before we go on, by populism, we, we we should talk a little. You should first talk a little bit about what you mean by populism. I think I, I have an idea of what you mean, but for listeners, uh, talk about what what that term means to you. So, um, you know that that I think um, is really a semantic question. Um, there is a group of people who are rural and feeling as though they have relatively diminished opportunities in the world that they're living in today as opposed to a quarter century ago or even 10 years ago. Um, and then there's a group of urban um, – it's uh, touchy to use the word cosmopolitan, but it is an appropriate word uh, – urban, cosmopolitan, international – the mobile people who live in the world's largest cities and 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 the interests of these two groups that historically i mean if we read jane jacobs or you know we really think about how cities have always interacted deeply as being really the source of innovation the source of increased productivity for rural places that that, that this is this these aren't two groups that that are inherently in conflict but what we're seeing is that as a consequence of voting systems, not again, not just in the United States, but but throughout the world, uh, that that are even sort of moderately uh, disproportionate by geography as opposed to population, uh, that you get this 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 tension uh, emerging. So I would say populism really is almost defined as uh, the political uh, insur- insurgency of rural places against urban cores and and the largest cities. And you can call it whatever you want, but that's what's happening uh, really all over Europe, uh, in the United States, uh, and, and, all, and elsewhere in the world. And you get the phenomenon as a result of people, say, in London, where I have some friends who, who told me, I don't know anyone who voted for Brexit. Well, and yeah, yet exactly. a lot of them did. 
I don't know anyone yeah. who voted for Donald Trump, and yet millions did. People will say that, and they tend to be in the same geographical location, uh, those folks, and uh, they can't understand. I think, you know, in one sense, what populism – this is not an accurate definition, but I think it – also gets at what you're trying to get at. You could think of populism as the sudden phenomenon in that a lot of smart people have no idea what's going on. Uh, the inability to predict uh, these changes, certainly to understand them in advance, uh, to forecast them, is uh, something's going on. And so the question is, is it a cultural phenomenon? Is it an economic phenomenon? Is it a medical phenomenon? Is it a geographical phenomenon? And I think what's astounding about your essay, and I confess, I apologize, I didn't realize it was 2016, I'm now even more impressed by it, I thought it was written recently, is that you really point out that a lot of this is, is appears to be geographic for reasons that, that may be decisive, obviously could be correlated with other things that are correlated with geography, but the question is, what are those things? What is the fundamental change that's going on here? And you have a line in the essay where you say, we are indeed in a world where the rich get richer, but it is the fact that rich cities are getting richer that matters most, that rich people are getting richer, richer follows from that. So this argument is, is that cities are very prosperous, increasingly prosperous, which, of course, is part of it. it and it, that doesn't imply that rural areas are increasingly less prosperous, but I think they are to some extent. And um, talk about what you're, you're getting at there about with the prosperity of cities. Well – I mean, so the richest cities in the United States uh, make uh, 34% more in terms of regional GDP uh, than America as a whole. Um, the uh, urbanites earn 30% more than rural residents. And, and what's, you know, is sort of striking that's is that's on average. Yeah. And, and then, um, you know, just between 2010 and 2014, this is drawn, this, these, this particular summary is drawn from an economist article, but, uh, you know, Glazer has a number of, uh, articles along the same line. There are multiple sources. Uh, but, um, but between 2010 and 2014, U S population grew by, uh, 3.1% cities overall by 3.7%, but the 50 richest cities grew by 9.2%. Now we haven't gotten to mobility. Um, and that's part of the frustration of, I, of people in rural places, I would conjecture, um, is that, uh, you know, as we all know, uh, land values and home prices in those uh, 50 uh, lar largest uh, major metros uh, have gone up in the last uh, 20, 30 years uh, just to a dramatic extent. And again, this is a global phenomenon. Uh, you had uh, Matt Rodney's paper um, a couple of years ago uh, sort of revisiting Piketty's results and, you know, finding that, that the that sort of famed uh, increased uh, capital share uh, relative to labor over the last 30 years was almost entirely accounted for by growth in real estate. So this is, this is non-trivial uh, at a macro scale. It's really the underlying determinant, again, if we believe that those, those numbers, uh, you know, from, from – uh, Piketty, uh, as as I think analyzed uh, very insightfully uh, by Matt Ronley, uh, that 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 th th these really are the core drivers of of inequality um, and 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 also the core drivers of restricted mobility. I mean, you simply you know cannot go to uh, Midtown uh, to New York or even Brooklyn, uh, you know, to live the dream of making it in New York any way like uh, my father did when he came from northern Wisconsin uh, to Columbia University in the 1950s. Or, or, or my mother, uh, you know, differently coming from Tunisia to New York City. I mean, this was an except exceptional place 
where people like my mother and father could meet uh, and they could afford to be there as young people with uh, really zero means from their family to sustain them otherwise. Uh, so, so, so we're in a totally different world in terms of mobility, uh, and 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 the divisions between the richest cities and the rest of the world uh, are becoming increasingly acute. And those of us, and I readily confess, and includes me, uh, that spend almost all of their time uh, in in one of the world's say largest hundred cities, uh, or it's easy for us to be oblivious to these phenomena. So, I just want to disagree with one piece of that, or at least clarify something. Uh, it reminds me a little bit – that it, it was a very useful summary. I actually want to make two points. One is Piketty's book was focused on this idea that the return to investment and the stock market was what gave the rich an edge. I thought that was silly on many accounts. Um, but the land point's not silly, uh, the point you're raising, and it's, it seems to me to be quite relevant. But it reminds me of the Yogi Bear expression, it's so crowded, nobody goes there anymore, um, which is his line about a restaurant, and that was right. suddenly yeah. popular. Right. No, Thank no, you for laughing. Right. It was a joke. Yeah. But, no, no, but, I, I know the joke, and well, I like the joke. But yeah. what's going on in, in New York and San Francisco and in, uh, in London, cities around the world, is that lots of – and in China – Lots of people are moving there. It's not that you can't move there anymore. A lot of people are moving there. They are pushing up the land values, the rents uh, that people can charge, uh, partly because a lot of people want to live in these cities because that is where economic prosperity is, is highest. It's where life is most interesting for certain kinds of people, not everybody. Uh, and it's also places where land use is highly regulated and restricted – so we're recording this in the middle of the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Houston, which has limited zoning, uh, no zoning as far as I know, or certainly limited zoning, uh, has not experienced the run-up in rents and housing prices that other cities experienced over the last couple of decades. But in the cities that have those restrictions, land use restrictions, building codes that are excessive to keep out competitors that have zoning that's excessive all of whether it's i shouldn't say excessive whether it's good or bad is a separate question but but it's harder to build a new apartment building in new york city today than it was a hundred years ago and it's harder to do that in new york city than it is in dayton ohio would be the claim and as a result the increase in people moving to these cities pushes up the price which means that those who are have not chosen to move and are considering it are first of all it's not as appealing as it was before because it's expensive and hard to find a foothold there, as you point out, in comparison to your parents. But it's also going to be the case, I think, that a different set of people are left behind than the ones who move. And that's something we haven't confronted, I think, as a, as a country or talked about even. Well, those are great set of points, and I uh, absolutely, um, you know, agree and readily confess that I, I made uh, two inconsistent points. I, I first described how the top 50, 50 cities in the United States are are capturing this disproportionate share of population growth, and then I made the point that nobody can move there. Yeah, yeah, but I knew what um, so, you meant. I knew so, what you meant. So, but no, I just no, wanted so, to no, clarify. And, uh, no, no, and and so so I mean that's exactly that that's exactly right. But it's simply the amount of value that is captured by landowners uh, and. Um, and, and, and you know, well, and, and uh, rent, uh, you know, uh, uh, landlords um, in, in in terms of what's created in the city. And by the way, I think the hero in all of this, and I talk about this in the code economy, 
uh, turns out to be Henry George. I mean, I think he really, uh, you know, the 19th century uh, United States economist, um, uh, and, and he really anticipated these phenomena more clearly, you know, than anybody. And, and also the role of regulation that you pointed out um, is, uh, you know, is, is very significant and, and certainly shouldn't be underestimated in terms of the differential. I mean, you've got New York with an average, you know, home price in 2015 of 375000 uh, Even Los Angeles, you know, sprawling Los Angeles, you know, in 500000 uh, for the for the Los Angeles MSA, uh, whereas Dallas and Houston are down at sort of $129,000, $162,000. Uh, so, so, so these, this, you know, Houston's an incredibly diverse place because it's been a point of entry. It's affordable relative to the other largest uh, metros. Um, MS, so MSA, MSA being this a metropolitan all, statistical is, area. Met, met, metropolitan statistical area, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, but I want to I also just sort of point out how extreme this phenomenon is. Um, is so, so I, I refer to, you know, UN uh, global population estimates um, and, you know, peaking at 2050 or whatever. Well, if you look at th- those maps, uh, you find that there's really only one story there in terms of one uh, continued population growth, and that's the African continent. If you subtract the African continent, and I just simply mean subtract it analytically, the, with what's happening, the dynamics of the African continent in the next 30, 40 years are different from the rest of the world because a large number of countries on the African continent have not gone through the demographic transitions and most other places in the world either have or are in the midst of it. This is a decisive factor when we look at development trajectories. So let's remove the African continent from the analysis of global population trends. And by the way, we wouldn't need to do that if we had open borders, uh, but we're not going to have open borders in the next 30, 40 years. We're not moving in that direction, so we can analytically sort of safely do that. If you do that, then it turns out that all of, pop, of net population growth globally, subtracting the, sub-Saharan, uh, the, the, uh, the African continent, all of population growth has occurred in cities over a million. Uh, and cities over a million comprise about 20% of world population. So that means that there has been net depopulation through the entirety of the surface of the planet Earth, excluding the sub-Saharan African continent and the top one million cities. So oh, it's not... It's, it's cities t- with one million population? S- 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 excuse me. No, definitely not the top one million cities. <laughs> the top... Uh, the top uh, it's about roughly 300 cities that have over, in, in terms of population ranking, that have over one million people. Um, and, and so, so uh, you know, that leaves out, uh, you know, cities like New Orleans. Uh, I mean, this is, these are big, big cities... Um, and and they're, they're really capturing, uh, you know, all of the population growth, all of the net population growth, and the tremendous share of the value creation. And so this divergence between rural and urban uh, is growing ever greater, and it's not a question of plateauing. I and mean, there's something sort of impolite about talking about population decline, depopulation. If you Google depopulation, you will find all sorts of black helicopter theories uh, and, um, you know, of of the most extravagant variety. Um, I wrote a book, a little e-book that we're now turning into a a sort of full-length book uh, with uh, with June Yun, uh, president of Palo Alto Investors, uh, and it was titled Depopulation. That's when we kind of realized this this sort of taboo around talking about population decline. But that's the reality for a lot of the middle of the country that we were talking about. Not all of it, of course. There's huge variation from town to town. But you know, you, you drive you know, uh, even through uh, the Northeast, much less uh, you know cycling cross country as my uh, middle daughter did uh, last summer, the summer of the election. And um, and you know, you see towns where the elementary school has closed, well, that tells you something. 
And, um, you know, it probably tells you more than any other factor relating to that town. This was a place where there were enough young people to sustain an elementary school, and there are not anymore. And those places are not doing well. Yeah, and I think there is a – I just want to re- remind listeners they can listen to uh, episodes with Enrico Moretti, uh, Chris Arnode, and uh, Tyler Cowan. We'll put up links to all those on issues related to this conversation. Um but I think when people think about the urban – when they write about it, I don't know how much they're thinking about it. But when they write about this urban-rural distinction, they tend to focus on hobby horses uh, that they want – or axes they want to grind, to mix a bunch of metaphors. Uh, so they'll say globalization. So what's happened with globalization is supposedly the rural areas have been left behind. The urban uh, areas are doing great. Manufacturing has been hollowed out, supposedly, in which it has been reduced greatly in employment, not output, but certainly in employment in certain areas, semi-rural areas and medium-sized towns in the United States. And so it's hard to know. There's some truth to that. I don't think that's the whole story. And part of what you're suggesting is, is that it's inherently destructive to the economies of small-town America and rural America when people just – leave and they're just fewer people that's part of your claim correct yeah that, well that's right i mean people like my father who left Marinette, wisconsin in you know 19 in the mid 1950s uh but that happens over a sustained era uh and you know he didn't go back i'm not going back um you know there 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 there's a selection process that is of course people do move to rural places and then they will move because that's the life and the set of values and the environment you know where they feel like they are most comfortable it's not just a one-way street but of course the net is to the to, to the biggest cities, um, but I, I you know I um, since you have uh, Nassim Taleb uh, on as a frequent guest, uh, there's no uh, danger of being you know at least even a tenth as uh, provocative and volatile uh, as he is. And by the way, I'm a I'm a big fan, big fan. Um, but but I mean you, you know I, I will I will to, to try to like ratchet up my my, my level to at least a, a tenth of a Taleb. Um, I mean the, we need the, the, a, we need the, a term for that by the way. Yeah, a tenth yeah, of a yeah, Taleb yeah. is an interesting. <laughs> term yeah, maybe well, it's a t uh, go ahead that, anyway. that may be as far as, I, as i'm capable um you know of getting um but but i mean it's sort of like it's either you know just quaint or parochial or just depressing to listen to about 95 percent of what passes as a public discussion of political life in this country uh, i mean there's this there's this kind of intense navel gazing you'd think that that this sort of world of punditry you know was just sort of had its head buried in its midsection, we really just cannot see at all the fact that this is an evident global phenomenon driven by at least these three core sort of centuries-long, if not millennia-long drivers that are hidden in plain sight, that are evident when we look at the data from not just the U.S. 2016 election, but when we look at Brexit, when we look at the voting in France, which turned a different way when it turns when it comes to, you know, the, 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 the revolt of the country. Um, but um, and I would say revolt of the country, I mean, the revolt of the countryside, rural places. Um, but but and you look at Erdogan in Turkey, you look at what happens when you open up uh, the vote, have more democratic processes in a place like Turkey. I mean, this is well known and well understood that the urban cores, uh, this sort 
sort of nascent cosmopolitan internationalist, uh, you know, sort of uh, you know population uh, lost some control to the rest of the country. That was an advance for democracy, but it was a loss for uh, let's say liberal democracy. Uh, you know, in terms of liberal values, or or and I, I mean classical liberal. I mean sort of this sort of notion uh, of, of process, um, and you know, and even um, you know set of set, set of values which I don't really want to enumerate, but it's basically uh, the urban, uh, you know, as opposed to, to, to the rural in conflict. And, and we can talk about why those are different, by the way. I mean, it's a lot different to be shooting a gun in the middle of a city than it is, you know, on your own property uh, in, on Wyoming. I mean, so it's not surprising people have different attitudes about the use of gun. It's a lot different if you're living in a city and you're rubbing, el- you know, just you're, you're almost, you're almost got your, you know, face planted in somebody else's on the metro every single day. And, you know, they could, they could be, uh, you know, wearing any kind of garb from any place in the world. You have to tolerate them. I mean, diversity, tolerance of so, you know, so-called diversity along whatever dimension. I say so-called because there are multiple dimensions. But whatever it is, whatever you want to call diversity, tolerance of that in a city is a necessity. It's an urban value. Uh, it's not as necessary in a rural place. Uh, it's not. It's not required. So it's not surprising that you would have uh, you know different values. But this is not just in the United States. This is everywhere in the world. And unless we understand that that you know it wasn't the baby boom, it was a demographic transition. We are like other countries, and 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 as a consequence, we are vulnerable like other countries. I mean, this is this is also gets into sort of the fundamental dynamics of politics and 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 how how they play out. So I don't I don't really understand that. I mean, I understand a part of it, which I think is really interesting. I think the your identification of this is a worldwide trend. It, it's you're not the first person to make that point. Obviously, it's obvious to anybody that that something's going on again that's not usual. There's a uh, the world's turned upside down in some in many many dimensions in the last few years. I, I don't. And I love your idea that it's these three trends are driving that, but I don't fully understand it, and here's why. And I also don't understand your diversity point. So London, again, being a good example, I want to move it out of the United States context for a minute. Uh, and let's talk about Brexit, the vote to leave uh, the European Union, uh, which, which uh, the country voted for. But there was an incredible uh, bimodal distribution. People in London voted to stay. People outside of London voted to go. Um, the urban people like seem to like the ability to move in and out of foreign countries in Europe. They seem to like the presence of immigrants, the tolerance that you're talking about. But you'd think it'd go the other way. You'd think it'd be uh, the people in London, which ha- is a very cosmopolitan city, has a wide range of people of color from all over the world in it, has a bunch of languages being spoken that you can't miss, has service people who, even though they speak English, speak it with a non-British accent and a non-American accent because they were born in Eastern Europe or in somewhere around the Mediterranean or somewhere far away. And yet it's the people in the countryside who don't mingle with those people who feel like we're, quote, losing our country. Our country is not the same as it was before. Uh, the, the character of Britain, of England, is, an, is not being preserved. They don't even interact much with those folks, with the people they're upset about, the immigration and the, and the people moving across borders. You'd think it would be the people in London who would be dismayed at how the city has changed. Why are the people who aren't living there dismayed? That seems weird. Yeah, well, I spent one summer in Seward, Alaska, and um, I mean, without getting into particulars, it doesn't seem 
strange to me. I mean, their 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 proximity um, uh, is is not actually a factor that. And I don't even want to talk about intolerance. It's just habit. It's just routine. It's something that it's sort of driven by you know your your, your daily life. Uh, I mean, in 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 January, a couple of uh, you know Gallup researchers, uh, Jonathan Rothwell and Pablo Diego Rosell, published this uh, study, um, and um, I, 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 and and really the focal point of of you know what they found. Sorry, it was November November of uh, 2016, and um, you know they they found exactly uh, what what you're describing that it was. That Trump support was sort of disproportionately uh, in places that were um, a few college graduates uh, far from the Mexican border uh, within commuting zones that were um, sort of fairly homogenous. Um, And and so so there was this inverse correlation uh, between kind of exposure to others um, and, you know, this voting pattern. I mean, that's just that's just the study, you know, November Gallup. Um, you know, cited uh, in the New Yorker, um, it's not really a question of understanding why or what that is. It's just simply the fact of the division and the fact that it's repeated, uh, you know, from country to country. I agree with you that it's not novel to say that the world, um, you know, is in transition. And at least some people, um, and I would say, uh, you know, people like Ann Applebaum, among others, uh, you know, who have been writing about political trends in Europe for the last decade, have the right kind of lens on this, where they understand really the extent to which the political dynamic in the United States is not a unique one. Um, but but there is something I think that is not conventionally uh, appreciated, and 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 that's really what the drivers are. So there's a lot of globalization uh, blame in this story, uh, a lot of uh, you know uh, sort of thinking about the hollowing out of manufacturing, um, and and trade and so forth. I mean, Brink Lindsay, uh, who's my colleague at the Coffin Foundation, some time ago uh, was the one who brought to my attention this uh, you know nice factoid that from uh, well fact that from uh, 1995. Uh, to uh, 2005, uh, roughly speaking, and this is you know when the um, U.S. balance of trade just sort of went through the floor. It was you know the, really the era where you really saw the resurgence or the the emergence of China as a global manufacturing power. The United States lost roughly sort of you know two to three million manufacturing jobs. Uh, China lost 10 million. And, and China's manufacturing employment peaked in the mid-1990s. It's been going down ever since. Um, so, so it's not like the jobs just sort of fled to China. There's been a net decrease in, in manufacturing jobs due to an increased, inf- increased efficiency and pro- productivity uh, in factories and technology uh, you know, for decades. Um, but, but that's not the core driver. The actual core driver is, is much more uh, what Ricardo Halsman and Cesar Hidalgo uh, you know, pointed out uh, in their Atlas of Economic Geography and you know, array of work around that, which is actually the stickiness of skills and capabilities in cities. And that's what I emphasize in the code economy. It is a total miscomprehension to thinking it was the opening of borders. It's the inherent boundary of, of, of skills. Now, you may say that then that, that advantages the places that can export, but, but that's because we're, we're, we're forgetting the human and demographic dimension of mobility. And it's these, this sort of a, a, a 
basically the possibility of getting near those places that have the skills, those dense interconnected, you know, combinatorial, uh, combinatorially um, uh, sort of uh, uh, rich places that are the richest cities, um, you know, that, that it's proximity to that, which is really the enabler of, of, of personal betterment. And we just don't have a solution for the vast majority of the world's it's sort of surface of the world's planet that isn't in those top 50 metros. Explain on that that point. I didn't understand it about uh, you started to make it about uh, Houseman and Hidalgo's atlas and, and the the city thing. Explain that again. Well, I mean, this is since this is a you know econ talk, and you know, I, I guess there's an opening to have just a minor digression on on you know the economic theory piece of this. Uh, but we have a uh, a way of thinking about production that, of course, then you know is translated into measures that are taken seriously as guides to policy and so forth and so on, like total factor productivity and the rest of it. And that's 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 a a, a, a way of thinking about production that links inputs to outputs. And 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 the choice, basically, the decision that a firm makes is the choice of inputs uh, in order to yield um, sort of the maximum output given fixed inputs, um, or to reduce the cost of getting to a fixed level of output. So that's the problem of production as it's been represented for about eighty years in the field of economics. Uh, now we know. Um, and there has been much discussion going uh, back to Sid Winter, uh, who wrote a tremendous uh, article about this in 1968, going back to um, Herbert Simon, uh, and going back to the middle of the 19th century, um, that, that, that there is an algorithm, there is a process, a recipe that turns inputs to outputs, that, 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 that beneath this notion, implicit in the production function, is a recipe. Like, a, like when you think about a literal culinary recipe, you've got inputs, outputs, and then you've got what you do with the inputs. Uh, now, in a world where really the processes were pretty well understood and easily copied, it was, it was really about investment to get the capital, to increase the marginal uh, productivity of labor, that raised rages. And then, you know, you had this sort of capital deepening story that happened around the world, uh, where as long as you had, you know, if it was in China or in the Soviet Union, forced savings due to the socialist system, but elsewhere in the world, market system that drove investment and capital, that's how you got long-term growth, right? But, but in the last 30 30 years, what's changed, and this is what we really need to be thinking about, is what's different in the last 30 years, not the last four or the last 15, but really something like the last 30, something fundamental change, fundamentally changed. And, and, and I, I believe that what that is, is that code algorithms took over. And, and we see that in terms of like the fraction of, of, uh, of, of corporate value in the United States. What does, this have to do, what does this have to do with people moving to cities? And well, what, has this has to, what this has to do with people moving to cities is that, that – sorry, it's, it's a long way around – is that, that, that it's that stickiness of skills and the capabilities of production within cities that is the core of the Hausman-Hidalgo argument um, that really is as, as good an explanation we have of the inequality that came about in the last 30 years. I don't understand that's it. That's the core driver. So what's, what's that mean, stickiness? Stickiness of what? That, that it's hard to live there? That it's hard to what? No, no. It's, it's, it's the skills and capabilities within a place, the know-how, the set of competencies to create uh, subcomponents that are fitted into larger components, ideas that are merged with other ideas. I mean, if you've got an aerospace industry, you've got a biotech industry, you've got um, you know a, a uh, you know place like Chicago that has a, you know a longstanding food and agriculture, all of those sets of capabilities that mix and recombine. 
Um, I mean, Martin Weitzman you know, ha has a paper, a couple of papers on this in the late 1990s that were about combinatorial growth and basically how skills interact to create the possibilities for growth. I mean, in my mind, that's really you know, the, 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 the best paper out of the endogenous growth literature because it really talks about how, how just simply the capacities within a firm. I mean, what makes Apple Computer what it is. Um, isn't the mix of computers and human beings in their Cupertino offices or any others. It's not the capital labor mix. It hasn't been for decades. It's how they do what they do, and that's location-specific. And that's the dominant driver of the economy, and we have no way of representing it in economics, so we mm -hmm. scramble around blindly looking at measures like TFP that are you know, built, on, uh, you know, the, um, uh, built on the constant returns production function that comes out of the 1920s uh, you know, uh, and Cobb Douglas and, up, uh, and, 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 and brought into the literature by Solo in 1958, uh, 1956 uh, and, and, and 57. And so you've got these... This sort of analytical apparatus that leaves out what is the core driver of uh, uh, of everything on the technology side in economics. So listeners, it's a big gap. Now, listeners who've heard me talk about these issues before will remember that I'm I'm kind of I'm, I have a healthy skepticism about this. Healthy in the sense that I'm, I don't have an axe to grind here. I don't have a horse in the race. I don't. I just don't. I literally don't understand the argument that says that if you'd moved Apple to other places, it couldn't have been Apple. Now, I I understand. That there's some sort. I'll, I'll say it differently. There is a water cooler effect within Apple. I understand that. If you have a firm, it's great to have your employees interacting and thinking of new things. The claim of of Hidalgo and Moretti and Tyler Cowen in the recent conversation we have, and I assume Martin Weissman on them read his papers, is that there's a water cooler effect in the whole area. That the mingling of ideas and interaction between uh, workers and firms somehow has this complementarity. And I'm open to the possibility. It's just not obvious to me that it's true. I know it seems to be true because we look at these prosperous areas. That there's an alternative explanation that I think has to be taken seriously, which is you know, all of this stuff about um, – it's just all these critiques of the standard model of, of production. You're talking about uh, capital. They, they falter – and, and many people point this out for a long time. They falter because one of the types of capital that's the most important is embodied human beings. We call it human capital. We call it education. We have terrible proxies for it, like years of education. It's silly. It's, it's really about know-how. And as you point out, recipes. It's about understanding how things work and how to make things work better, how to improve the recipe, how to make the people more productive than they were before besides just adding a machine. It's the way the... Machines interact with the people. It's the way the people come to the machines with knowledge they already have, et cetera, et cetera. So I just, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's just not obvious to me the mechanism, other than the fact that it appears to be an empirical reality, that there are certain areas that seem to do well. I don't, I don't know that it's. Let me say it a different way. It's true that the that cities are more prosperous than rural uh, populations, but that could be just because the people who are in the cities are not the same as the people who live in the rural areas. It's because they have more knowledge, and you're you, not just you, but the people who are making these claims are overstating the benefits of city when, in fact, it's just the fact that the people who live there have the highest skills. All right. Well, so. Presumably, you're not skeptical of the literature on firm-level learning curves. 
No, I, that's probably true. You mean the firms right. learn how to do things, but they can get better and better very quickly exactly. through experience. So we have a phenomenon of organizational learning, not just individual learning, but there are organizations that learn better over time. Right? And this is robust to turnover within the organization. It's not just the people. That there's something it's in the culture. aggregate about yeah, it's sure. a culture, and, and, and there are cultural practices. We have anecdotal stories of entire industries, like, for example, the German chemical industry that was destroyed twice, and all, lock, stock, and barrel moved to England, and it came back, right, because it was in the practices and the people in the organizations. Yeah. Those organizations had a resilience that was beyond the physical infrastructure, and it really was beyond just the people. Right. So we believe the, the firm learning with the learning curve literature because it is the dominant regularity on the production side. It is to the production side what the demand curve is to, uh, to, 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 to the demand side. So we believe the learning curve because we have no choice but to believe the learning curve because we've been documenting it for 80 years and it's, it, we find it across industries, across firms. We also believe the work that Nick Bloom and John Van Rienen have been doing, mostly ignored for about 10 years and now celebrated rightly uh, about the uh, dispersion of productivity uh, levels um, within, uh, you know, for firms within industries, across industries and across countries that simply firms have not figured out how to do even easy things. Things well. This is a, a confusing fact, right? But the but 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 Nick Bloom, John Van Rieden, this is the most robust literature today in terms of understanding firm level productivity. It's profoundly important. Then we have uh, 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 you know uh, Katz and others at Brookings who have documented similar productivity differentials across uh, cities. Um, and so we see that it's not just the level of the firm, that there are similar productivity levels at the level uh, across cities. Then we have Glazer and others in multiple papers who find that, that, in fact, the correlation between population and productivity differentials actually doesn't hold for the bottom third that it only holds for, for the top of the distribution. So, so, in fact, it is this kind of rich cities get richer that drives these fundamental disparities that all is anchored in divergence of, 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 of capacities and capabilities at the firm level and, and, and then at the region level. I just, I so just, so, so just it's skeptical. not something that can be doubted. It's well, not no, something no. that well, can be doubted what, based <laughs> on the fact. Well, it can no, be doubted, I mean, trust you, me. I, I, I could doubt I, it. <laughs> the part the part I'm doubting is not the not the empirical reality that some cities are quote uh, rich. I'm not going to take the, I'll take the quotes out. What what can't what is not doubted is that some cities have higher levels of average income than others. Uh, that's a fact. Point question, number one. The question is is that because those cities are say denser, which is part of the claim. Is it because those cities have pulled in? Uh, all the people like the people that need to interact, or is it just because they attract really smart people? That that's what's not clear. That's all. Uh, well, I'll uh, let mean, you get the but, last word, but then I want to move on because yeah, enough yeah. on this. But but cut, react. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I mean, obviously, the whole point of the scientific method is to be skeptical, and so if we don't have skepticism, we don't have science. So it absolutely can be doubted. And what I'm saying is that we have a, you know a, a a body of of learning about divergence of productivity levels uh, among places. Uh, that's just the technology side of these three causes that we talked about in the beginning. Uh, it, it interacts with urbanization, um, and the demographics are a third, you know, equally important. Um, so, but my insistence on this this point, and obviously I'm insistent, so I wrote an entire book about it, um, is that, 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 that really without understanding 
this, this notion of the recipe, of who can run a better restaurant than somebody else and why and how that endures and how we have celebrity chefs and how even in something like cooking, which has been going on for as long as we've been human beings, you have this tremendous divergence. This is not something that, that, that can be explained by human capital alone. And I will, I, I, that's, my very, that, that's my conjecture that I believe is pretty robust when we look at the way in which the similar type of phenomenon are replicated across scales. And I think it takes a rather extreme theory to say that it only goes up to the firm scale, but it doesn't go to the regional scale. Well, and the reason no, it wouldn't go to the regional scales, there's no water – it's not obvious there's a water cooler for people to mingle and interact with. I mean is it the bar? Is it the local nightclub? Is it – you know, the, the, the claim – now, I'm willing to admit okay. there is – all I'm really objecting to here is that the people who make these claims never seem to specify the mechanism. They observe an empirical reality – excuse me, an empirical regularity, and they don't really have a mechanism for how this takes place. Now, I'll say, there, are, there are such possible mechanisms. It could be, for example, that the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley are driving a lot of the inter-firm uh, movement and, and efficiencies of, of human capital being allocated better there perhaps or, or the fact that, that people get stimulated by, by working in one company and can quickly move to another, which they might not be able to do if they were in Poughkeepsie or somewhere else far away. Uh, by the way, there's a certain irony about all this, which is that the, that the technological digital revolution has to let me work from my bedroom, which I'm doing right now. I'm working in my office downstairs. Uh, I'm not sitting at the Hoover Institution. I'm not mingling with you here in the D.C. area, even though I used to be at George Mason. And somehow we're having this conversation across distance, and we're stimulating our ideas with, against each other. And yet uh, these arguments are that you have to be physically near people. Now, physical matters. Obviously, there are costs of moving. There's costs of adapting. There's cultural differences across areas that are difficult to change. So all those things are possible. I just think this so-called – uh, complementarity theory or nonlinearity theory, whatever you want to call it, hasn't really gotten to the bottom of it, of what's going well, on. Well, I know you wanted to just close this off, but I want to give you one mechanism. Yeah, go ahead. Right? <laughs> and it's the coffee house. Yeah. Okay? okay. I spent a lot of my time in coffee houses. Um, and um, so there's this great article uh, in the New York Times um, about uh, three years ago, four years ago, uh, and it was about uh, you know sort of seventeenth uh, century uh, coffee houses. I mean, Adam Smith wrote *The Wealth of Nation* in a coffee house, right? And coffee houses have, for centuries, been the mixing and mingling grounds. Now, mixing and mingling grounds. We also have on top of that now co-working spaces, and we have you know exercise and so on. So, in fact, I would say that the physical workplace is not. There is no water cooler. I mean, I don't get water at a water cooler. I don't even know what the water cooler is, but I know what coffee is, and I spend a lot of time in coffee shops. And it's a place that is a very dynamic uh, center of interchange, right? And people pay for access to those environments, and they pay a lot. You can think about how people, you know, they're just just in terms of rent differentials, what people are willing to pay to be in a Brooklyn, uh, you know, a, a, as opposed to a Dayton, um, and and they're getting something for that. So, so I think the market's revealing something there, and when we see the differentials between uh, what what people are willing to pay in different places. Well, I think they're getting a lot of things at those different places that have nothing to do with productivity. They're getting more cultural life. They're getting better restaurants. They're getting better weather. They're, they're getting access to the mountains. They're getting access to the beach, whatever it is, uh, a right. view of Mount Rainier right. on a clear day uh, in Seattle. Um, I want to propose <laughs> – let me propose – you can come back and answer anytime you want. But let me propose yeah. a different uh, explanation for the populist phenomenon that is related to your uh, drivers, but in a different way than usually uh, suggested, and and maybe explain some of it. Uh, I would argue 
that the world is changing at an increasingly quick pace. Uh, that economic change is changing at an increasingly quick pace. I've pointed out many times, I don't think our data are very good at identifying this, particularly in measuring, say, consumer prices because we don't control for quality and quality is getting uh, increasingly better at a faster and faster rate, say, on how much uh, my phone can do or other, my television and so on. So I think a lot of our measurements totally off. And I would argue that there are differences in how well people can cope with these changes. Uh, I'm lucky. I happen to have the idea to get into podcasting at a time when podcasting is growing. If I'd gotten to this idea in 1920, I'd, I'd have tried to get my own radio show, and I would have failed. And none of this, whatever talent I have at this business, wouldn't have led to anything. So I'm not suggesting that some of these uh, abilities to deal with change are unique to certain people, not to others, but certainly change helps some people and hurts others, and some people are comfortable with it. Some people are uncomfortable with it. So if you've been living in a, say, rural environment, I mean, one of the obvious things about a rural environment is it's pretty static. Uh, what changed in the 20th century that was not static was the farm. So the farm changed dramatically over the first half of the 20th century. They all got a lot bigger. And that meant that a lot of people who were living in rural areas couldn't make a living anymore, couldn't make a good living, and they moved to cities because that was where they could do better. Um, I think what's going on now is that, partly for what you're identifying, I'm open to the possibility that the decreasing density of non-urban areas, not just rural areas, but non-urban areas, small towns, um, that's hurt them economically. There is There are gains potentially from increased density. So those areas that have Lost density, there's just less, fewer things going on. And so their lives are less appealing, less fun. Now, in the old days, they'd move to the city. But as we've been talking, it's gotten more expensive to move there. And a lot of people do move. But the ones who are left behind are, are in an economic landscape that's less pleasant than it used to be. And this is, hap this is happening all over the world. I don't think it's just globalization. I think some of it is urbanization, as you point out. Some of it is the application of technology to economic processes, which has sped it up. So instead of just as you get older, things are a little more difficult, they're a lot more difficult. Uh, people are frustrated that the things that they used to rely on socially, culturally, economically have disappeared. And I think that's a big part of what's driving the populist movement around the world. And I don't, I don't think it's inconsistent with what you're saying. It's just a variation on it. No, I, I mean um – so there's there appears to be from just you know the slogan for the election of our current pregnant president uh, a sense of something that was lost that you want to recapture. Yep. Right, and you see that in Brexit. You see it in France. Uh, my, my, as I said, my mother's from Tunisia. My um, relatives all live in France now. Um, you know, so I follow you know French political dynamic at least to some extent. I mean, it's, it's not that different. Um, and so, so there was a sense of something lost. But, but, but if you look at you know the, the, the French uh, you know post-war resurgence, you know les années glorieuses, you know, and the sort of sense of like there was a kind of or, or the mid 1960s in the United States. I mean, there's nothing more corrosive to public debate in this country or in France, for that matter, uh, or or in England. I mean, the the the, the, um, the 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 focal point may change in England. It may be the 1920s uh, or, or the uh, the uh, 1930s um, or, or earlier. But here, the, there's nothing more corrosive than focusing. 
on the 1960s as the point of reference. And unfortunately, that's what the, you know, an outsized share of political discussion does. And that's what, at least for people who are, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you know, is, is a natural focal point in terms of their own recollections, that there was a better time that they've lost, right? Uh, now, in the United States, we only got the prosperities of the 1950s, 60s, um, you know, it, to the extent that we did as a consequence of a world war that destroyed, uh, that killed 60 million people and destroyed every production center in the world except for the United States. And that gave us this wave of immigration, including some of the, so many of the world's most talented people. Um, and anybody who could get to the United States did for an interval. Um, and then we also had, you know, world markets that were, uh, you know, sort of available to, uh, you, know, you know, U.S. exporters uh, without uh, any kind of significant competition for decades. And so this was this incredible boost and, 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 and sort of it, it, it framed the, the, the notion of what the norm is for a generation. And the entire baby boom generation is crippled uh, by, this, by this historical accident that holds up the aftermath of a world war that kills 60 million people as some sort of like wonderful norm the that we want to return age, to. Yeah. As the golden <laughs> age. I mean, it is the most, it is the most, it, it, so, so anything, if you use the metrics of the 20th century and you compare now to the 1960s, we will lose on every dimension and you can be depressed for as long as you want to be, right? And if you think about, you know, a places where population are, is growing and there's dynamism and there's the frontier are different from places where population is shrinking, people are in pain, you've got the, you know, farm industry pushing Oxycontin down their throats like they did in West Virginia and elsewhere, um, you know, in the, the entire story that you had with Sam Kenyonis on your show, which was terrific. Um, so, so, I mean, you know, yeah, there is real misery uh, and there's a real sense of loss, but it simply doesn't hold up if we think, again, you know, not only in 30, 40-year intervals and not only in terms of the United States. For most of the world, of course, the last 30 years has been fantastic. It has been probably the best era in human history. It's just the rich six that has been, and, and really rural places in the rich six that have been punished, and they've been punished severely for doing nothing but staying put. Yeah, it's a great observation. I, I just want to reiterate that. China and India have undergone one of the most, there's, not, there's no parallel to it in human history, right? To have hundreds of millions of people improve their lives dramatically um, is a glorious thing, and I'm, I think that's to be celebrated, and your point is that at the same time, they've, they've not caught up to the richest countries. The richest countries are overall doing still phenomenally well. It's a subset of the people in those rich countries who feel uh, left out and are left out. Um, and I, I think let's move on to what might be done to make that better. Uh, you know, For me, the obvious thing is to reduce the restrictive nature of land use in American cities, but that's politically – that's kind of a non-starter. The people who are already there have the political power to, to, to keep it the way it is. They want to keep it the way it is. It's in their self-interest to keep it the way it is. So it's not obvious uh, that's, that's going to change. You know, what's happening in, in the Bay Area, which is um, it's, it's so weird and non-functional, like summer in Palo Alto, which is unimaginably expensive to, to spend any time there. And what's happened is that people are living farther and farther away uh, to, to come work in those in those cities that are thriving, you know they're commuting from Gilroy, which is uh, you know forty minutes an hour or something to forty minutes south of Palo Alto, an hour or something south of San Francisco. But that's where young people are moving to try to start their life. 
uh, and facing these very long commutes. Uh, of course, one argument would be the autonomous vehicle will make those longer commutes more, a little more pleasant, uh, which just means that it'll push the uh, places they commute from even farther away. But um, let's well, you probably about- saw that that letter from the uh, Kate Downing, who is the uh, at the Housing Commission in Palo Alto. No, and, and she starts. Well, anyway, it was all about. Is all about this. But you know, but oh, in yeah, the past yeah, three years, yeah, complaining, yeah, I mean, home, upset home about values it. have gone from you know one point two five million to two one and a quarter million to two point five million in three years. Um, I mean, is you know these are real phenomena. But you talked about like what are the solutions? Yeah, right? let's start. And you, I completely and agree with you on land use restrictions. In fact, there's a very simple one, um, and it could happen in the next six months, and we have the right political configuration to make it happen which is to lift height restrictions in the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just one city, uh, but it does kind of, you know, create some sort of entry point for the Mid-Atlantic. And the the city of of Washington, D.C. is is really unique in the world in that it has banked billions of dollars of asset in these, these sort of falsely conceived uh, you know, uh, height restrictions from another era. And I'm not, I've always, I, I, you know, I was born in D.C., you know, I've lived in D.C. a lot of my life. I like Washington, D.C. I like the way it looks Great and city. feels. But yeah. it is, it, 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 it is terrible uh, from an equity standpoint. It's terrible from the standpoint of the long-term prospects of the city. And it's because this is the nation's capital, it's terrible uh, from the standpoint of, of the longer-term prospects uh, of the United States. Uh, so that's just one case in point. You're talking about land use regulations, broadly speaking. I mean, defeating NIMBYism, you know, town by town, block by block. Yeah, I agree with you. Good luck, because that, we're not moving in that direction. We're, we're moving in this, you know, in, in the opposite direction. Um, but just even, the, same even way, the Washington, D.C. point, if you're a, a significant developer, real, owner of real estate in Washington, D.C., you're going to fight that repeal of that height restriction uh, with everything in your in every well, I, atom I, of your body. I personally would lose too. I mean, I'm you know I own a home in Washington, or at least own some fraction of the home that the bank doesn't own, and um, and uh, you know, and so I would be hurt. We could wipe out you know all the equity that I have. Uh, but just from a policy standpoint, you know that that I I, I agree with you. Um, there's an irony though, and Richard Florida has pointed this out. There's an irony to major metro land use restrictions, which is that it pushes people to say the Portland Mains, right? Which is a great town, and yeah, you know, it's a couple of hours from Boston. But if you can make that work, it's much more accessible, and it helps that sort of you know southern, uh, southeastern part of Port uh, of, of Maine, uh, you know, thrive and prosper, which it is doing arguably at least. You know, around Portland, um, it, so 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 actually, there's there's this this irony that, that that the largest city NIMBYism is actually favorable to the the, the second tier cities, which are the ones that actually really need to thrive if rural is going to be pulled along. Now, anybody who I listen to who says that they have a solution for how you uplift rural places, um, you know, bring back the coal industry, uh, no. Uh, bringing back manufacturing, yes, manufacturing will come back, but it's going to come back, you know, in the in the form of 21st manu- century manufacturing, which is not going to create the jobs that it used to. Uh, but we're certainly going to see manufacturing come back to the United States because this is a good place to do manufacturing. 21st century energy intensive, algorithm intensive manufacturing is great to do in the United States. It's not going to create jobs for huge numbers of people. I would say the number one is healthcare to the home. 
uh, changing reimbursements, Medicare and other reimbursement schemes to create a middle tier of sort of health concierge. I mean, Walmart could take the lead in this. Walmart sees themselves as being on the frontier of 21st century health services. Um, you know, healthcare to the home, distributed health services. Uh, I wrote a piece for Cato uh, on this a little while ago, home healthcare economics. Uh, for explain, uh, explain what you mean. So one of the things you say in another essay, which we'll put a link up to, which I also really liked, was – uh, in the in the so-called war between humans and machines, uh, people are going to end up doing things that are more human. So, how does that work in this case? I mean, th- this this to me is um, a- another point that I feel is inadequately articulated. I mean, John Hagel um, is terrific on this uh, from Deloitte. Um, it, you know, he writes about this very well. But I, I, and Nilifer Merchant actually has a new book coming out, Onlyness, that I think makes this point in a different way. Uh, but, but we know that that when there is the introduction, when there's a discontinu- discontinuity in the advance of code or the advance of technology, it, it, you know, you think about, um, you know, the introduction of, um, of of CDs. You know, when there's a kind of like a lower cost, uh, 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 or say VHS, let's say, um, or, or DVDs. There's a lower cost alternative to movies, and that doesn't eliminate movie theaters. It makes the movie theaters that continue to exist sort of a higher value experience um, that 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 then you know sort of bifurcates the market to a higher and lower value. Well, we're going to see that with with the the uh, you know uh, inevitable increase uh, in in AI um, in 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 um, you know sort of algorithmically driven intelligence of all of, of all varieties in all parts of work. And I do think it's going to mean that people's human skills, those things that people and people everywhere, including rural places, uh, but also in cities, um, that, that simply are you know are at least a hundred years off in terms of AI capabilities. I mean, literally, eye contact. I mean, I have a TED talk that focuses it's called "Eye Contact Can't Be Automated," but eye contact can't be automated, um, and I, I'm at least not for a very long time. Um, and healthcare, I mean, post recession, uh, out of the ten job categories that experienced the ten middle wage job categories that experienced the greatest growth, four of them were in some version of healthcare to the home, distributed health services, not just health care, generally speaking, but new models of healthcare, And that's without the technology, um, you know, quantified self and, um, and, and, and uh, AI-empowered diagnostics to the iPad and, you know, all these frontier technologies that are going to allow, uh, you know, a 22-year-old uh, with three months of training to be as effective in the home setting uh, as your average doctor was in 1973, at least, maybe 1985. So, so, so this capability combined with eye contact, a cultivation of a sense of empathy, really caring for people, um, whether people like it or not, whether this is the job they want, this is the job that's going to exist. And so, and they're going to exist in the millions and they're going to exist in the millions, not just in the United States, but in Europe and in China. It is the largest growth category of jobs anywhere in the world. And it's mostly obstructed by regulation. And I would say between um, – this is a domain where regulatory reform could really make a difference for, for the possibilities of millions of people all over the country. Um, and we've just got to get the framework in place to make it happen. So you see this – can you give me a, a, a specific or two about what this person's doing? Are they just taking – or are they just a companion to help deal with the health issues that an elderly person would have or an ill person? 
So, so the VA uh, Veterans Administration has actually been uh, a leader in distributed health services, which combines mobility. Um, you know, it, it, it inclines uh, so you know um, uh, sort of uh, uh, computer-based healthcare um, and, and, and 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 medical house calls. Um, and and they found that just just through going to a home and counseling about um, uh, about uh, uh, you know pre- making sure to uh, maintain uh, you know uh, uh, prescription use on a regular basis um, to uh, you know behavioral adaptations just looking around the home and seeing what kind of clues the home setting gives uh, you know to to behavior uh, and to sort of determinants of, of morbidity but actually focusing on wellness also. Um, you know, sort of uh, engaging on issues of sort of diet uh, and habit, uh, but on a on, you know on an informational, personal person level, and you see consistently whether it's you know healthcare to the home models, um, you know twenty percent uh, cost reduction, um, whether it's uh, you know mobile enabled uh, health services, twenty percent cost reduction, mostly through hospital avoidances. I mean, the last place you want to be when you're sick is in the hospital. We all know that. And so, you know, what mobility and healthcare to the home allows us to do is to avoid that. So, yeah, it's information providing. It could be simple diagnostics. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it could be, um, you know, some sort of engaged, uh, you know, AI informed uh, discussion that would that would begin to look at causes. But that could be further on. It's like a healthcare concierge that's focused on hospital avoidance and increasing wellness. And there's a gap. Is a gap below nurse practitioner uh, and above what we think of today as a home healthcare worker. There's a gap there that can be filled by you know sort of millions of jobs, That's literally millions. Great idea. Um, well, we're getting uh, we're getting late here. I, I want to give you a chance to talk about the closing of your um, your essay, coming back to this issue of populism, uh, and maybe this can bring a bunch of things together. I'm going to read your last paragraph, which is very eloquent and. Um, I think well said, you say the following, cities are humanity's greatest invention. They are platforms on which we share, create, exchange. They benefit from density. Returns accrue disproportionately to owners of land. This causes inequality and invites a backlash. Yet the fundamentals of value creation in human society are not going to change anytime soon. Achieving inclusive prosperity requires working with, not against, those fundamentals. Uh, end of quote. So, uh, expand on that, or comment on on that, given what you just uh, what, you, what we've been talking about. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, just to excuse my earlier vehemence about um, you know algorithms and their importance at the you know regional level, but in some ways there has to be like a causal element. There has to be a reason that cities are special, and cities bring something together. Uh, I mean, Jane Jacobs is oft cited, but she's brilliant on this, and she really led a generation of people, uh, you know, in thinking about these questions and understanding what a vita- what vitality is within a city, and 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 it's almost, uh, you know, I actually think it's almost mystical uh, because you know it's almost like the arrogance of the single neuron. You know, the single neuron is like computing all day long and thinks it's very important. They got messages coming in, messages coming out, and the idea that there's a scale above the neuron. That might be of significance. That's just like that's just impossible to conceive. We sort of feel like there's something out there, but we don't know what it is. Well, cities are that, right? And E.O. Wilson, when he talks about um, you know um, the uh, the social conquest of Earth, you know, brilliant. 
book, um, you know, focused on group selection and so forth. But there's a dynamic there of, of human societies where we work together and solve problems together. And we do that best in cities. The advance of human society, I do believe, is the, is the story of the advance of cities. Uh, and it continues to be the story. But we are at a cusp event. We've just had 200 years of population growth, dramatic population growth, driven by the advance in technology, advance in code. And, and, and now we're at, a, we're at a point of inflection. And, and we're, we're, we're now moving towards population decline. So that means everything that we assume about uh, you know, net positive re- real rates of return, everything we assume about asset prices, whether uh, you know, it's, it's real estate or anything else, for most places going up, leave aside the top 50 metros, all of that is called into question. So this is an enormous challenge, not just for public policy, it's an enormous human challenge. And, um, and, and I think we've got to start by understanding what its drivers are. And they're not anything specific to the United States. Um, and they're not anything that's only happened in the last 30 years. So that's for sure. After recording this piece, Philip and I both had some things we wanted to add. Uh, so uh, here we go. Philip, uh, why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, Russ, I mean, I think in the middle of our discussion, uh, you asked this question about uh, what it really was about the Hausman and Hidalgo work uh, that uh, and about uh, combinatorial innovation and capacities within region is really sort of the the differentiator between the highest performing regions and others. And 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 I think that there there was a there was an element of what you were saying in terms of what really drives that uh, that, that that I think it's it's worth exploring further. Um, we did get into it to, to some extent, but this question of is it human capital that drives it? Is it is it learning? Um, is it the speed of learning in cities, or is it just sort of the mere fact of being uh, sort of closer to the technology frontier? Um, and and you know, we sort of went around it, but 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 I actually think these are really interesting and open questions. So I was kind of interested in revi- revisiting that. Yeah, so what are your thoughts? Um, I have my own – you know, I, I felt having finished the conversation that I had been just a little too skeptical. I want to uh, add my own uh, – No, you uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, interested in what you had to say on that. So you know, I'm, I'm basically – what I had said earlier was that I was skeptical about the idea that, um, uh, that if you increase the population of a city somehow, that makes people more productive in and of itself. And I would call that the naive version of the claim. Uh, you know, the, it, it appears in the data that cities that are denser have more people are more productive. The question I always that I asked earlier was, you know, what's the mechanism? And um, I don't want to deny that. I mean, one of the obvious mechanisms is reduced transaction costs. And it's there's no doubt that there are some advantages to being close to people, physically close to people who have interesting ideas. And, you know, you talked about the coffee shop. I think in Palo Alto, it's the breakfast place, uh, which is often a coffee shop. And I live there in the summer, and I've had morning coffee with a lot of interesting people and had great conversations. And uh, I've thought about if I were in that high-tech world that being that close to that many interesting people would definitely stimulate my thinking about lots of different things. And even on just a practical matter, if you wanted to start a high-tech business, talking face-to-face with smart people about who to hire and what the, uh, you know, the, the needs of that company might be is probably a lot better than sending an email from someplace at a distance and saying, you know, any good engineers. So I, I do think there are some complementarities, synergies, whatever you want to call it, from physical proximity – 
But I also just want to maybe clarify what my claim was. My claim before, my skeptical claim, was more along the lines of attractive places attract smart, talented people, and we don't want to confuse that phenomenon with the fact that there's something intrinsically valuable about living in high density or high proximity with other people. I think a lot of things come along with that, like culture and and food and entertainment and the things that we mentioned earlier. So that's my uh, that's my uh, footnote or caveat to what I said before. Do you want to add anything? Well, yeah, and I think that uh, you know my understanding of the literature is that this is actively debated uh, and researched, and I cited a, a number of of papers. Uh, that, first of all, substantiate the notion of firm-specific learning uh, and that learning about economically relevant, economically important things is not a costless activity at all. Um, And this sort of Marshallian notion that Information knowledge relevant to production is sort of somehow in the air isn't you know really not true. Like you're saying, there's this sort of a mechanism that needs to be at work. Um, and, and and then secondly, this this uh, the research about the the dispersion between places in terms of their productivity levels and how that's linked to wages. And so 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 what what's driving that is it that we're drawing the best people? Is it learning? I think these are actively you know debated and discussed questions. I I, I I'm, I'm as I understand the literature, I think it's pretty. Conc- Inclusive that um, that that we are, we so far aren't able to fully explain it with human capital measures, but human capital measures certainly play an important role. So I, I do think, like my understanding of the literature is that there is something unexplained there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, that's those are these are really empirical questions. Of course, the other thing you want to think about is that, as as you pointed out at the beginning of the conversation, as you increase the demand for living in these places you push up land values making it more expensive to live there so to attract talented people to those locations where a lot of people want to live you have to pay higher wages so wages are a lot higher in palo alto california than they are in dayton ohio Uh, some of that's due to what's going on in palo alto versus dayton that's the productivity part we're talking about some of it is the fact that a lot of people want to live in Palo Alto because it's got good weather and it's near attractive things to do. And that, and the same is true for New York City and other great cities, uh, not to put Dayton down. It's a fine place. I'm sure there's a lot of nice things about it. But land is more expensive in San Francisco and and New York because more people want to live there than want to live in Dayton. That pushes up wages. Real wages are not as different between San Francisco and Dayton as they appear to be because they don't you don't normally correct for the high cost of, of living in those places. So we tend to look at just nominal wages in a city, correct for inflation, but at a point in time you don't have to do that. The CPI in Dayton, uh, the national CPI is the same at a point in time, and so we naively perhaps – deflate wages in Dayton and wages in San Francisco with the CPI. But, of course, the CPI you face in Dayton is very different than the CPI you face in San Francisco. So, Well, exactly. 
Yeah. No, actually, I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was the other element that I think we um, that that's really worth bringing back in here um, is this issue of mobility and land values as they relate to all these questions. Um, and so, so the decrease in mobility in the United States actually has been a long-term trend. It hasn't been discontinuous. It's sort of peaked in about 1985, and you have sort of diminished mobility, you know, within country mobility, you know, ever since then. Um, but 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 it's it's obviously related to land values, and I think it's also related to learning because one of the significant vectors of, of learning, um, you know, maybe more significant than the coffee shop, is being able to move from one job to the other. And so, in every job, then you have access to the firm-specific knowledge within that job. Um, and in a city, of course, you have uh, a, a much uh, sorry a large uh, you know sort of dominant metro. You have a, a lot more uh, job opportunities within the city, and a lot of opportunities to move within the city, uh, or you know, to be consulting or otherwise sort of interact with different firms. Um, so I think that's really an important vector, and it's very limiting if you can't get access to that, or if you can't leave your second, third tier city, maybe because your your house is underwater in terms of its mortgage or uh, or literally underwater, um, and 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 you know, so you're stuck where you are, um, and 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 that will also affect your access to these learning opportunities. My guest today has been Philip Hourswald. Philip, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, this has been terrific. Thanks so much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.